0: Welcome to Hazel and Katniss and Harry and Starr, a podcast about YA literature, their filmic adaptations, and everything in between. I'm Joe. And I'm Brenna. And this week we're talking about zombie rom-com, Warm Bodies. So for all of you new listeners, we are a spoiler-heavy podcast. We are going to be spoiling both the book and the movie. So if you have not read said book or watched said movie, you should pause the podcast and go and check them out now.
1: Definitely. Or if you don't care about those things, you should just keep listening.
0: Yes, which is also a completely acceptable choice.
1: (laughs) Totally. So usually around here, we start with a little bit of news from YA slash YA adaptation world. Would you mind if I start off, Joe?
0: You go ahead. It sounds like you have something you want to say.
1: I do. I tweeted it to you this week, but Dumplin' is coming out.
0: Yes, and I had absolutely no (laughs) idea what you were talking about. (laughs)
1: So Dumplin' is a book from 2015 by Julie Murphy. It's called Dumplin'. And uh, the premise behind Dumplin' is uh, Willow Dean is this fat teen girl who is totally in love with her body and who she is and doesn't really care what people think, which is why she's totally rad. But she's of course surrounded by people who feel differently. And by series of twists and turns in the novel, she ends up in a beauty pageant. And uh, yeah, so the film adaptation, like, I'm obviously way out of the loop, but they literally just announced this. I'm actually looking at, like, the history on Wikipedia right now, and, like, they announced this movie in March of 2017, and it's going to be out on Netflix this December, December 7th.
0: This is how Netflix does it. They so essentially, fast. yeah, they, they're pumping things out all the time now.
1: And it's so exciting because, you know, normally you hear about a movie in development and, you know, three years later you're like, oh, whatever happened to that movie? So when I tweeted you about it this week, it's because I was totally taken off guard. But yeah, so I'm just telling people to keep an eye out for it because the book is delightful. She's a protagonist like no other. And the other fun thing is that the protagonist and her mom have this whole, like, Dolly Parton thing. And I guess Dolly Parton was so excited about the book that she's done all the music for the film.
0: Oh, wow. That's amazing.
1: Yeah, I know. I'm so excited. So yeah, anyway, Netflix, December 7th, which means that, as I told Joe, our podcast recording on December 10th, we'll be talking about Dumplin'.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, that that honestly sounds really exciting. And it's on our mandate that we're trying to look at a wide variety of different kinds of YA novels as well as the adaptation, so it's good to have a little bit of body positivity representation in there.
1: Totally. And the director is the person who did 27 Dresses and Step Up and the proposal, so it should be funny and should be fun. I'm into it.
0: Excellent. Yeah, I yeah, know. It sounds good.
1: Cool. How about you? You got any news for us, Joe?
0: I do. I'm, I'm going to continue to receive mediocre grades on this segment because <laughs> I, I feel that you've just done a much better job of finding things in me (laughs) my thing this week is actually have a tie-in to today's film which is my husband brian and i have been watching a tv adaptation it's from the uk i think on sky sky one network it's an adaptation of a discovery of witches which is also on our list because it's a ya property yes It's witches and vampires and demons all living in the real world. They're very mysterious. They don't get along or like each other. And it essentially, of course, involves a witch who discovers that she has the capacity to grab a long-forgotten text out of the Oxford Library that is wanted by all three groups. It's essentially the origin story or potentially it will have the capacity to kill or end one of the other lines. And she ends up coming into contact with a very powerful vampire who, of course, they fall in love. But the witch is played by the same actress as in Warm Bodies, Teresa Palmer.
1: Oh, cool. Uh, That sounds awesome. Not just because I am into anything with the library as a major component of plot, but that sounds really, really good. How is the adaptation holding up? Are you enjoying it?
0: It started off a little bit shaky. It's eight episodes. And right now we're at either seven or eight. It took us a little while to warm up to it. So the book series is actually a number of different books. And it was actually just announced today that the TV show has been renewed for two seasons. So it will have at least three. But they're actually pulling in components from later books into the story now, which doesn't always make for a happy marriage because it introduces characters that you're not exactly sure why they're important and it's having a couple of adaptation issues but the chemistry between the two leads I find has steadily improved throughout the course of the first season so they're well cast.
1: Nice well I assume you're going to be assigning this to me in the near future so I'm looking forward to checking it out.
0: Yes we're going to reserve the television adaptations (laughs) and dole them out less frequently than films because they take that much more effort but hopefully we can i don't know pack one in every once in a while
1: yeah no we definitely will and i think that's where it's at with a lot of ya adaptations right now is taking stuff to mini series or short run on like netflix i'm thinking of 13 reasons why and stuff and then spinning out in all sorts of directions so yeah we're definitely gonna have to to handle the tv thing plus if we don't handle the tv thing we're never going to talk about tale and that would make me so sad Oh, jeez, Riverdale. <laughs> it's
0: just going to be a, the, the dark cloud that hangs over every week of this podcast and the many, many thousands of listeners that we have.
1: <laughs> I'm going to mention Riverdale every week until I die. All right. Well, if that's news wrapped, I guess we should jump into the podcast.
0: Yes. So this week's combo is Isaac Marion's 2010 novel Warm Bodies and the 2013 Jonathan Levine film adaptation of the same name. So Brenna, do you want to kick us off with a synopsis of the book?
1: Sure thing. Warm Bodies is... Not YA. I'm going to start with that, Joe. <laughs> I'm going to start with... Wow. The Shots
0: fired right off the top.
1: <laughs> I'm very comfortable with the film as YA, but I'm not sure the book is. And we'll talk about that more when we talk about all that it is. But I'm going to... I want to start off my synopsis with that because I think otherwise the synopsis is confusing. So Warm Bodies is a retelling of Romeo and Juliet set after some sort of zombie apocalypse has happened. Our protagonist, R, is a recently zombified man of indeterminate age who is wandering an airport, gate 12 in particular of an airport, and I guess it's, is it Seattle? I feel like it's Seattle.
0: You get the impression that it is a, some kind of semi-coastal warm weather city. Yeah. It's indeterminate.
1: Yeah. So he's... We can hear his thoughts, and we know that he is not a brainless zombie, but he also lets us know about the distance between who he is now and whoever he was before. He has no memories, really, of his life before he became a zombie. So he has to go and hunt for food because he's a zombie, and spoiler alert, they eat brains. And while he's out hunting, he comes across a woman who a young woman, teenager 19, I think she is, uh, Julie. And she's with her group. They're out, I guess, collecting pharmaceuticals for for their community. And he kills and eats her boyfriend, Perry, who is obviously supposed to be Paris from Romeo and Juliet. And because he eats Perry's brains, he gets all of Perry's memories and so sort of immediately falls in love with Julie. And takes her back to the airplane where he lives and they build this weird relationship
0: it's not weird Brenna they fall in love (laughs) they
1: they fall in love I'm putting quotation marks around love so they they develop this relationship and it becomes clear that she needs to return to her community not least because obviously there's gonna be a search party out looking for her and his community of zombies is going to be in danger but the through line is that as he falls in love with her he's warming up (laughs) becoming less zombified healing in some way and not just him but his community as a whole and so the course of the second half of the novel is an attempt to reach her home community but also to communicate with them that the zombies are not really zombies and that they need to unite to fight the real threat which is the greater than zombies zombies called the Bonies.
0: It's just just laughably bad. <laughs> <laughs>
1: it's pretty bad. And then unlike the real Romeo and Juliet uh, it has a happy ending.
0: Yeah the the weird thing when I was looking this up earlier today is that apparently this is not the end there's actually three other books in this series. There's a prequel. What? That follows Julie's friend Nora and her younger brother who we never meet.
1: Oh okay that I would be interested in.
0: Yeah it follows Nora and Julie and are before the events of this book and then there's a sequel and then there's an upcoming final book which i don't know if it's been released or it has only just been released
1: so a prequel totally makes sense to me because one of the things that i found frustrating as a reader is that even when you are in the heads of the living characters you don't get a lot of perspective on the situation that they're in so i would totally read a prequel because i want to know how they got to this place but i'm baffled at the idea of two sequels because i really felt like he ended the book
0: I mean, I don't know if, uh, how often we want to delve into uh, financial matters on the podcast. (laughs) I wouldn't be surprised if that, I mean, from what I've gathered, both the book and the film were quite popular. And so it wouldn't surprise me to learn that Mr. Marion got an offer that he maybe couldn't refuse, or he decided, you know what, I can squeeze out enough story to justify. I, I think you're right. I concur with you that a prequel makes sense because there is enough in this world to justify having some other component to the story. But the one thing that I do like is that there's a bit of speculation, but we don't get any kind of definitive answer as to what really ended up causing the zombie plague.
1: Yeah, that's my worry about a sequel is... You're sort of left at the end of the book with this idea that like, I don't know, maybe love really can heal all. It was an uplifting book to finish uh, a couple of days before the, or I guess tomorrow is the midterm elections in the States, right? Like it was pretty uplifting to read this, this novel where you can end an apocalypse of brainlessness with love. That's nice right? mm-hmm. in this particular political moment, but I would not want a pin put in that. By which I mean, I I don't want to know that it's actually just a virus that they recovered from because of whatever. Do you know what I mean? Like, I I like the metaphoric nature of the
0: cure. 100%. And there's a reason that most of the zombie texts end up abandoning the concept of a cure, because it's not interesting.
1: Yeah, (laughs) it's true. It's a good point.
0: The zombies are are metaphors for other things, as you just so optimistically (laughs) said, you know, particularly in, in this book, it's all about coming together and accepting people despite their differences and being willing to let go of preconceived notions about what people who are othered are like Mm -hmm. and coming together through love to change the world.
1: And embracing softness, right? So spoiler alert, Julie's father is killed in the process of sort of reckoning at the end of the book and he's killed because he cannot see the importance of softness, right? So Julie's mother basically went crazy. Her father thinks that she was drunk. Sounds to me like a perfectly rational response to a zombie apocalypse, frankly, to just run out and feed yourself to zombies so you don't have to think about it anymore.
0: I think we're back in mental illness land. It read to me as though she was Depressed. There's there's a lot of talk about the confines that they live in at the stadium being oppressive.
1: It sounds awful. And I, this is my problem. So listeners will come to recognize that I am definitely more comfortable with realism than I am with specfic. Because every time I read an apocalypse narrative, I'm just like, I would immediately kill myself. There is no way <laughs> oh, I would ever do. It sounds awful. And you can never convince me that like the rebuilding's going to be better. I've seen like an episode and a half of The Walking Dead. the rebuilding is not better none of it's better there's no part that's better so I fully empathize with Julie's mother but so Julie's father has this whole thing about like you can't be soft because softness destroys you but as a result he has completely lost in your relationship with his daughter because he can't be a human being right and so that's what she finds in R is this person who's supposed to be a bloodthirsty killing machine who is a vinyl record collector <laughs> like super sweet and genuinely interested in her well-being and preservation but not in the way her father will preserve her life at all costs R wants to protect something of the world that came before I just feel like the book actually ended really well
0: it definitely does and I think it's interesting that we're back into some interesting gendered roles and I'd mm. like to get your perspective on this because I found one of the things that was both charming but also slightly off-putting is that the reason that R and Julie seem to work in the book is because she is his entire existence. Like, mm-hmm. she becomes the symbol of his reason to live. Whereas we come to find out that her relationship with Perry was already on the rocks before he was eaten. And we get a number of different flashback or hallucination brain hallucinations in which it's revealed that perry was essentially suicidal and that idea of the male role models in julie's life either don't pay attention to her or they they only look at her as something that can be killed yes whereas with r it's all about his love for julie and his need to protect julie and frankly reinforces some very uncomfortable ya trope to me
1: yes i agree so this gets at the heart of what bothers me about the book which you know for the most part i enjoyed as much as i will ever enjoy a zombie book but what gets at the heart of the problem with it for me is that it is an adaptation of romeo and juliet that like almost every adaptation of romeo and juliet profoundly misunderstands what romeo and juliet is doing
0: it's about star-crossed lovers (laughs)
1: I'm going to have tattooed across my forehead. Romeo and Juliet is not a love story. Just stop it.
0: It's a freaking tragedy, people.
1: <laughs> it's a tragedy, and it's a tragedy because... Listeners, welcome to my intro Shakespeare class. Romeo and juliet
0: It's a free public education. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but Romeo and Juliet opens with the character of Rosalind, right? And Rosalind is such an important character because Romeo is infatuated with her. He's obsessed with her. He's hot for her. And he uses all the same language that he will eventually use with Juliet with her. Romeo is an inconstant lover. Romeo is the definition of an inconstant lover. And you have to remember that as you read the rest of the text, because it isn't a story of pure, true love gone awry, star-crossed. It's absolutely not. If that's the story Shakespeare wanted to tell us, he wouldn't have given us Rosalind, right? Like, Rosalind is there to show us that Romeo is just a horny teenage boy who will react this way to any woman who pays attention to him. It's about... The tragedy of people being incapable of communicating and, like, foolish acts and not thinking to the consequences of your actions and, like, the fact that people's anger can ratchet up to a point that those decisions that are made in that play seem rational. So when you get an adaptation of that story that treats the love story as earnest, I'm always super uncomfortable with what it does thematically from there. Because the whole point of Romeo and Juliet is that the parents have a stupid feud. with well, the feud between zombies and not zombies isn't stupid, right? <laughs> like,
0: no, even if you want to look at the bonies as the surrogate parents of the zombies, it, it doesn't work.
1: It doesn't work. It doesn't work. So in the book version, R is in this weird zombie marriage. His wife is (laughs) zombie cheating on him, and they're raising some zombie kids. By far my least favorite part of the text, but I felt like what he was trying to do there was invoke Rosalind. But it doesn't work, because we know that R feels less than nothing for this woman. Whereas the whole point of Rosalind in Romeo and Juliet is the parallels between the way he communicates his love about Rosalind and the way he communicates his love about Juliet. So instead we just have this weird tacked-on marriage thing happening.
0: And it mostly comes to nothing. Yeah! We get one final supposed scene you're, you're meant to infer that at the very end of the book there's a scene where the wife looks at a picture and she starts to come alive as well.
1: Mm-hmm. And his kids right his kids are kind of leading those kids leaving the airport.
0: Yes yeah but even that the lack of clarity around that or even the connective tissue that brings it back to that marriage and that family at the beginning is really lacking. I could actually completely see people reading this and completely forgetting about that entire subplot.
1: Oh, totally. Like, if I had read this separate from watching the film, I would not have noticed its excision at all. Because Mm -hmm. the other thing that bothers me about the way that's dealt with is, like, there's one scene where R is supposed to be, like, thinking about his kids, and it's so ham-fisted because there's no other evidence that he ever thinks about these kids. (laughs) And there's one point towards the end where Julie's like, oh, are you thinking about your kids? And I got whiplash. I was like, wait, what? What kids? Oh, right, the kids. Like, it's just so bizarre. No, don't it's don't just bad dadler. Dad <laughs> <laughs> it's bad dadler. It's like, why are you with this guy? He's a terrible zombie father.
0: So can we talk a little bit about some of the rules? Because I think one of the things that you just raised for me, it's another slight problem with the book, is that there's a lack of consistency in how R does and doesn't think or feel or what he remembers and what he doesn't. Yes. To me, it's not a major issue I was trying to go somewhere and my jaw was just flapping because I I basically just want to get you to talk to me about the religious experiment with the bonies.
1: Okay, so this is, this is, I'm glad you brought this up because this is one thing I think the book does way better than the film. So there's these characters of the bonies who are, as near as we can figure, right, zombies like one step further. They are one step more removed from humanity. And in the film, they're just these bloodthirsty killers. And you're just like, what? But in the book, they are effectively the spiritual leaders and the political leaders of the zombie class.
0: And they can communicate with the regular zombies.
1: Yeah. R ends up with a wife because the bonies Effectively, deem that he will have this wife, right? And then he ends up with kids because the bonies give him these kids to look after. So they're sort of in control of the spiritual and kind of political health of the zombie community, which is why when R effectively betrays them by choosing Julie and choosing to protect Julie, it makes sense that they are out for his blood after that. I liked the bonies in the book way more than in the movie because in the movie, it's just like, oh yeah, there's also these bonies. They don't really kill us, but then sometimes they do.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, and I think regardless of how you feel about the very, very different climaxes of the book and the film, what works as a through line in the book is Mm -hmm. that spirituality angle coming back. In the book, the climax ends not with a giant battle, but with the Bonies essentially recognizing the spirituality of the, the romance between... R and Julie and they give up the the ghost and they walk away. And that's the that's the end of the conflict.
1: And it makes more sense too because the book is making some pretty aggressive comments about the futility of war in general and like the futility of continuing to battle mm-hmm. and how if war is only for the sake of war. What are you preserving? One of the things that underscores Perry's suicidal nature in the book is this question that he asks, why are we surviving? Like, are we surviving because we think things are gonna get better? And the answer that he gets back is, "Mm, maybe. But really, we're just surviving to survive. And the book asks really pointed questions about whether that's enough and whether some sort of vague notion of existence is enough to maintain the kinds of controls and boundaries and, you know, destroy relationships. Julie's father's relationship with Julie is destroyed over his obsession with survival as an end goal, right? And I think a lot of that gets lost when the climax becomes a battle (laughs) (laughs)
0: yeah yeah but you're absolutely right i mean i've ended up earmarking a couple of different sections in the book and a lot of them have to deal with perry's suicidal nature and julie's mom's suicidal nature but there's an interesting conflation between the environmental components to each of their personalities we learned that perry originally was working in the gardens And he wanted to be a writer. And essentially Perry's transition from being a healthy teenager to a suicidal leader is essentially that he keeps making moves that take him further and further away from the natural or the
1: the Mm -hmm. poetic,
0: the more sort of artsy Mm -hmm. inclinations he has. And then there's a, a really, I think, interesting, very surprisingly deep passage where R observes a fight between Julie and her father about a plant that his mom had. So they built this perfect house and then the mom put a giant potted plant in the middle of one of the rooms and the dad was very upset about it but then when the mom kind of fucked off a little bit, he ended up having to be the one to take care of it. And I think both of these, they're almost incidental. Like you could skip over a couple of pages and Mm -hmm. and miss some of that underlying nuance. But at the end of the book, it becomes very obvious that so much of those elements are reinforcing the value of life and how important it is for the survivors to not lose that hope and think about, okay, we do need to have kids. We do need to work the gardens like, The gardens are just as important as the security and the erection of gates and merging with these other cities. Well, and, and,
1: you know, Julie's father's ability to care for the plant but not to admit that he loves the plant, right, is, like, an important recurrence in their relationship. So he's able to... He can do everything to keep the plant alive, but if he's asked to admit any kind of emotional attachment to the plant, he's incapable of it. And the same is true in his relationship with Mm -hmm. Julie, and it's why his relationship with Julie atrophies, even as his entire life is structured around keeping her alive.
0: I think, ultimately, it heavily foreshadows his death.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, I agree.
0: So, thinking about that, why don't we transition over to the film version? Here is the trailer for those of you who haven't seen it. What am I doing with my life? I just want to connect. Why can't I connect with people? All oh, right, it's because I'm dead. I wish I could introduce myself, but I don't remember my name. I think it started with an R. But that's all I have left. It's kind of a bummer. I shouldn't be so hard on myself. I mean, we're all dead. This is my best friend. We even have almost conversations sometimes. Mm-hmm. Call these guys bonies. They'll eat anything with a heartbeat. I mean, I will too, but... (sighs) At least I'm conflicted about it.
1: is learning to be
0: human again oh my god is that him yeah okay so much like the perks of being a wallflower the film adaptation more or less embodies the plotline of the book so in the film r is played by british actor nicholas Hout.
1: this was the first time i had seen him since about a boy and i was like whoa okay <laughs> you got hot
0: yeah which is literally a bunch of people's comments like oh yeah the the zombie is kind of hot so you're basically the nora of the that's me um And Julie is played by Teresa Palmer, and her father is played by John Malkovich in what just strikes me as very unusual casting. Agreed. And then, of course, the most unusual casting of all is Julie's best friend Nora is played by Annalie Tipton, and that character is supposed to be Ethiopian in the book, and she's white as snow in the movie
1: so whitewashed and like I had no idea when I watched the film because I watched the film before I read the book this time and like oh man what a missed opportunity to say something more complex about this community that they're building which is so white in the movie
0: unless that is the commentary maybe that's why it's like oh maybe, yeah maybe. Seattle white 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 but maybe and then our best friend who we've not really spoken about much uh his friend m is played by comedian rob cordry so we'll get to the humor in a little bit and then perry rounds out the cast uh played by dave franco in what amounts to a a couple of cameo scenes
1: yeah i'm always okay with a movie where a franco dies so that i find that that fine that was fine
0: but this is the cute franco
1: (laughs) is this one any less rapey you can cut that
0: No, I think I'm going to keep that in. (laughs) Okay, so what would you say is the the most substantive difference between the book and the film?
1: So for me, it's two things. It's that in the film, R is explicitly a young man, which Mm he is not in the book. And I think that that changes, to me, the tone. It's why I say I'm not not explicitly certain that the book is YA, although I am very comfortable categorizing the film as YA. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's like the first big difference to me. And the second big difference is the living population is experiencing a lot more restraint and constriction in the book than they are in the film.
0: Let's tackle that second one first, because that to me is one of the biggest issues that I have with the film.
1: Because in the book, they're basically all live in a stadium. Like that's all that's left. Mm -hmm. So that sense of observation, that sense of control, that sense of Julie's desperate desire to break free makes sense in the book in a way that it's kind of like a spoiled rich girl in the film, I felt like.
0: Particularly when you see her palatial mansion of a house in the film, which then gives us the most literal version of the (laughs) Romeo and Juliet interpretation when R shows up under her window. (laughs) Which I will confess, I didn't really associate the text very much with Romeo and Juliet. And then when that shows up, my notes for the movie are like, gag, oh, what? (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it is pretty explicit and I think it's even got that kind of uh like she's talking about him right before he appears at the window, so it's even got that whole wherefore art thou Romeo vibe to it. Yeah.
0: Yeah, at least in the book when it happens, she's actually recording her audio diary. In here it's just like, Oh, she wandered out onto the <laughs> out onto <laughs> the balcony and she's having a think about her absentee boyfriend zombie boyfriend.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that sense of the world as being quite circumscribed is missing from the film
0: well to me the bigger issue was that in the book you actually get a sense of what the life is like in the stadium because you get that walking tour where you get to see the graveyard Mm -hmm. you get to see where they're shooting zombies as target practice you get to see all these different kinds of things
1: well and you get this picture of this sort of um reminds me a bit of
0: ooh charades how many words
1: (laughs) went out of my head um <laughs> With that walking tour of the stadium, what you also get is this sense of the way people have tried to rebuild life in this kind of ramshackle ways. So there's small buildings on top of buildings on top of buildings that have been built out of salvaged siding and then there's like a bar in one of them and stuff. So you get a sense of a people trapped between limitation and this desire for humanity and it's in those spaces like the bar where people are sort of trying desperately to eke out a bit of humanity that R gets to really figure out who he is in relation to this world and like all of that is gone from the film.
0: Yeah, I I actually love that bar scene. I completely forgot about it. I I read this book ooh, many years ago. I remember the general structure, but I had I had only remembered that they go to a bar, but I had forgotten the that really humanistic touch of they've got these little snippets of old sports games but they don't have the full thing and it's a life that's been not just cut short but it's also being cobbled together and people aren't paying attention but if you were to go in there for the first time you would immediately notice okay we we don't even have you know whatever sport it is i don't think it's even clear if it's football or baseball or something like that yeah
1: i well i didn't pick up on it but that's not surprising (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah all yeah, the I ball you could, all the, it was a sports um but i get i get exactly what you're saying there that uh there's like a futility but also weirdly a hopefulness like
0: exactly they go
1: and they keep doing it and they keep built they keep trying to build community in the ways that community was built before
0: even if it is fractured and incomplete they're they're still holding on to that facsimile of an old life but it's being built up in a new way mm-hmm. and then you contrast this with the film version of it and to be honest, I I actually really, really like this director. He did Fifty Fifty, which is the Seth Rogen, Joseph Gordon-Levitt oh, yeah. uh, cancer movie, which is amazing. And I think that on the whole, this movie manages to find a lot of comedy and a lot of warmth. Not in the least because of the casting between the two leads and obviously Rob Corddry as a uh, comic relief. But I really feel like his world building completely lets the film down in this last act when we spend a lot of time in the stadium. The scenes where you see R and Julie and Perry going in and out, like sneaking through the, the back gate, mm-hmm. literally does not make any sense. No, it, it doesn't. The settings do not visually look alike, and... You have no sense of where you are at any time. So the world doesn't feel real and you don't get a sense of space. You don't get a sense of that community. I can understand why a bunch of it was cut because I think the book suffers a little bit in the pacing when you have that because you're like, okay, we'll get to it.
1: Yeah, I agree with that.
0: But the film also then suffers because you don't give a shit that this... (laughs) that this last bastion of humanity is being attacked. You're just like, oh, okay, they're under siege, like every other movie that has to end with a big fight.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And I, I think, too, because we don't get to see what that space is through Julie's eyes the same way we do in the book. And so, I, I mean, I'm being a little bit offhand when I say, like, the poor little rich girl setup, but I'm also kind of not. Like, she Mm-mm. in the film, she's in this palatial estate, and she's still got access to life in a way that she doesn't in the book. And I think as a result, it's kind of like, the film is cute and I like it a lot, but I don't care about the people in the same way that I did in the book.
0: No, and I think that's because you're you're literally just meant to root for the romance. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And to find the, the subversion of zombie tropes as a, a, an amusing trifle in a way.
1: Right, yes, that makes sense. Because also I think the film relies a lot less on you being interested in spec fic as a genre than the book does, for sure.
0: And, and just for idiots like me, that's speculative fiction.
1: yeah sorry speculative fiction but you know what I mean like anybody can go to the movie and enjoy it it doesn't it's not really a zombie movie if I think they called a paranormal romance on um, Wikipedia like it's not it's not really a genre piece in the same way the book is
0: no it reminded me a little bit of uh Shaun of the Dead where it wants to use it almost like a box to play in but the minute that that kind of stuff doesn't work as well I want to get out of that box and I want to then just have my, my teen romance with my incredibly sexy photogenic (laughs) leads.
1: Yes. Yes. I agree completely.
0: Who again, I think actually do a really good work and they basically have all the heavy lifting and then Rob, cordry comes in and and you know cracks a couple of wise cracks and he's whatever. great and
1: funny as the sidekick because he's great and funny as sidekicks so in the book version he's real lecherous in the book version a way he's not in the film version so then when you're reading it and you're putting rob cordry's face on that character it becomes a little bit disturbing
0: yeah i think particularly if you watch the movie first and then yep. read the book and you've got his image yep. in your mind as you're thinking yep. about that character but the book is also i mean These are really interesting texts. I didn't think we were going to have anywhere near this amount to talk about between the two of them. But even the more stark graphic portrayal of sexuality slash non-sexuality in the book where people just...
1: So many limp penises, Joe. So many limp penises.
0: Yes. Things that I don't want in my, <laughs> my YA, to be honest.
1: <laughs> well, it's just like, I mean, it makes sense that he's thinking about this, because he's this self-aware zombie, right? So it makes sense that he's thinking these things, but it, it honestly, it gets a little excessive in the book, I felt like. And especially, I hated the last scene we have with Julie and R together, and it's like, and then she looked at his pants. I was like, "Are you kidding right now? Are you kidding yeah. right now?" Somebody needs to talk to Isaac <sighs> Marion about penises and how they're not actually that interesting.
0: Well, I maybe this maybe this is a good place to start to wrap up this discussion. <laughs> so we're in chapter two of this podcast. It's a second week of white male authors and white male directors. So I think at this stage, maybe part of the reason that we're seeing some of these sticky issues is we need to shake things up, and we need to go to somewhere different.
1: I agree. No more penises.
0: (laughs) Yes, let's get rid of the penises.
1: (laughs) Forever. (laughs) So what are we doing next week, Joe? Because it's my pick.
0: It is your pick. Mm -hmm. I I don't know how I ended up with the, the first two picks. That's so greedy of me. Yeah, so next week we're going to look at the 2014 novel To All the Boys I Loved Before by Jenny Han. And it's 2018 Netflix adaptation, Speak the Devil, uh, directed by Susan Johnson. So we've got a female author of color and a female director, which is super fucking rare.
1: And I'm so excited because I have intentionally put off watching this so that I could read the book with you, Joe, and talk about it. So I'm so excited because Netflix teen that's my wheelhouse right there (laughs) netflix originals for teens
0: i can only imagine what your recommendations look like when you log in
1: (laughs) it's funny because sometimes i forget to log into the kids one before i put stuff on for the toddler so it'll be like do you want to watch 13 reasons why or cars 2 they're the same
0: (laughs) and your answer is yes, yes every time every time so before we, we sign off, did you want to play one game of YA bingo with warm bodies? Bingo! Not a good bingo.
1: Yes, my way, YA bingo square for this week is child soldiers. Child soldiers.
0: Uh, yes, we, we will hit so many child soldiers the minute that we dip into uh, dystopian futures.
1: And actually, that was the moment when, after my suspicion about the book and being like, I don't know if this is YA, the moment that, like, clinched the film as YA for me was the scene where you see all the teenagers in their makeshift army gear listening to John Malkovich give them a USA, USA speech. I was like, oh, no, it's definitely YA. Cool. We got child soldiers. (laughs) Fine. Yeah. Yep. What about you? Did you have a YA bingo this week?
0: Mine is Secret Shakespeare.
1: (gasps) Secret Shakespeare. That's a great YA bingo. Mm -hmm.
0: Because there's... A shocking Mm -hmm. number of them that fall into that.
1: So true. So true.
0: All right. Well, if you want to engage with us, you are welcome to seek us out on Twitter using the hashtag HKHSpod. And my Twitter handle is at BstoleMyRemote. That's B as in the letter B, StoleMyRemote.
1: And I'm Brenna C. Gray. Gray with an A.
0: If you like the show, please be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to. It really helps us to get the word out and helps other people to find it.
1: So until next time, I will see you on the page.
0: And I'll see you on the screen.